0: Hello, and welcome to Reenergize. Today, we're talking about something that everybody takes for granted. It's invisible to us. It works for us every second of the day, and few people really understand what it is. Intangible and unknowable. It is, of course, the grid. The increase in renewables, whilst heartening, is having an in- inevitable impact on our infrastructure. And at the heart of this, the national grid. The job of balancing the supply and demand of energy has become more challenging. But I'll be talking to three guests today who are leading the search for solutions.
1: So, thanks, Ben. Uh, my name is Michael Smales. Uh, I'm a research engineer here at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, and I specialize in grid integration. So, that's the integration of battery storage, energy storage, um, solar, wind power into the grid, that sort of interface between the two.
2: Hello, thank you, Ben. Uh, I'm Rameet Kaur. I work as an Innovation Manager for Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult. Uh, my role entails working with high growth SMEs to enter and grow in offshore renewable energy sector. And I also work as an intermediary between the enterprise and academic engagement. I'm currently leading the eGrid grid project, helping SMEs to understand and exploit the infrastructure.
3: Hello, thank you Ben. My name is Alex Hunter. I'm Managing Director of Sherwood Power. Uh, we've been a member of the eGrid program, uh, which has been highly beneficial, and we are developing energy storage solutions based on compressed air to embed within the system to help with the integration of wind and solar. Okay, thank you everyone. So I'll start with the first um, the first question.
0: Uh, it's quite a, quite a broad one. Um, I don't know, Michael, if you want to start us off on this one um, so how much can the grid take and let's talk about
1: the UK grid it's a challenging one because in theory the grid can take an awful lot it's just been set up for a different style or a different way of transmitting energy so historically um, we always used to have our major generation very close to our load centers so our cities um, so you if you think back to your coal power stations, nuclear power stations, gas power plants, everything else, they were always very closely located to our main population centres. This made it very easy for us to transmit that large amount of energy to where it was needed. And then our loads reduced the further away we got from, from those epicenters. The problem now with renewable energy is most of this, Energy is found in the remote parts of the country, where people tend not to live, in part due to the extreme weather conditions. So we're having to reverse the power flow direction from uh, into out to out to in, and that's where the main challenges um, the main challenges are, I suppose. So we're trying to do that in the most cost-effective way. We can't completely redesign and rebuild the grid to meet this new new phase of development. So we have to try and think of smarter ways of doing this, whether that's through energy storage, through using smarter grid controls, better control algorithms within the renewable plants themselves to really minimize the financial impact that's required in order to get all this new power onto the grid
0: and you mentioned energy storage as one way to do that Um, what are the options around um, energy storage Um, what what kind of technology and innovations are out there does anyone want to pick up on
3: that point yeah there is no silver bullet for energy storage Um, the initial drive was through uh, lithium ion batteries uh, which is mainly for frequency response and then you've got down the line more load carrying capacity energy density capacity in uh, flow batteries uh, you've got uh, Highview high view energy who are doing uh, liquid compressed air and looking at uh, ccs carbon sequestration technologies as well to bundle that in together and um, on top of that, you have a whole lot of other things, like dropping weights uh, to generate uh, energy or store energy, and then winching it back up again with other low-cost energy. There are a million different ways of uh, doing energy. The one big thing I would say about chemical, uh, the chemical uh, storage solutions is that it takes about 30 years to first identify the chemistry to build a new type of battery. Um, and then you have to then commercialise that and put it into production. Uh, we we don't have that sort of time. And, and I know there's an awful, awful lot of money going in that direction, uh, but there has to be a blended uh, a blended set of solutions uh, which can carry energy, energy not just power, but energy from hours to different hours in time.
2: I think there's a place for each and every energy storage solution in the market made before frequency response for longer storage times and uh, that's where the market is there is requirement for energy storage in all possible cases
1: so i suppose just picking up a point alex mentioned it's about storing energy as well as power and there are two very separate um constraints there are two very separate paths that you can take and it's important not just to talk about energy storage, but to identify the R2 streams. So, battery, lithium ion batteries, a prime example of power storage, they can deliver a vast amount of power very, very quickly to allow the grid to compensate for momentary lapses in power mismatch between generation and demand. But they're too expensive. And too, yeah, too expensive and too complex to have for very large energy storage, where you can mitigate changes in uh, generation and demand over days or weeks. You just can't do that with that sort of technology. That's where other technologies, such as compressed air, hydro, and other storage facilities, that they can't provide the same instant reaction, but can store a much greater volume of energy um, for a, a reasonable cost,
3: and it's quite an important distinction. Absolutely. If you, if you look at most of the lithium uh, installations, they only ever talk about the power output. They never talk about, uh, so that's megawatts, or mostly they're talking about megawatts. Uh, they never talk about megawatt hours, which is the duration of energy over time. Uh, and, we need a huge amount of gigawatt hours put into the system in order to meet net zero. Um, Aurora technology came up with a figure which was some 63 gigawatt hours worth of additional power has to go into the grid in storage to meet net zero. And they felt that was conservative. Yeah, so
1: you have the two different problems. You have the immediate issue if a power plant goes offline or a lot of people suddenly decide to switch their kettles on, that's where you need your lithium ion in order to connect vast amounts of renewables where the wind might be blowing a lot one week but not that much. The next week you need a lot of energy storage that can bridge that buffer. Other ways you can uh, seek to do it is by increasing the size of your grid. So increasing the number of interconnectors between the UK and mainland Europe, which over, although wind energy, solar energy is, yeah, fickle within small regions over vast areas, it's fairly consistent. So you reduce the amount of energy storage that you need, which is also another important factor to include. We can't just look to be completely insular within our own country to meet all of the solutions. So I think, as Ravne said earlier, we need to look at all solutions, but not just energy storage, but outwith that as well to make sure we,
3: we address all the challenges. And I think uh, just, to, uh, just to look at the grid and how much can it take, the grid is already showing signs of stress. National Grid is saying, uh, saying, okay, they can deal with transmission side, There's the transmission side, the distribution side, and then the end user. They're trying very hard to do uh, DSR, demand side response as a response to uh, to, to variable input, basically. Um, And if we look at uh, May, March of this year, just to put this in context, uh, the grid balancing services, one day in May, the day before, spent 300K. The next day, they went into negative pricing for a full nine hours, and it cost the grid 6.6 million pounds to balance the grid for one day that is a sign a definite sign that you've got a grid under stress and then if you look at blackouts brownouts on top of that you have uh, a cocktail of uh, markers going in one direction and although everyone is saying it's all rosy at at one end and policy is coming out at one end saying yes we all have to have 42 million electric vehicles by 2050 and we all need to be on uh, ground source or air source heat pumps which are electrically driven I don't see how the current grid is going to be able to, uh, to manage that sort of stress, certainly not in the village I live in, where if you put um, a couple of uh, superchargers in there, you would blow the local transformer. That's absolutely right. Um,
1: it's, the challenge of energy storage is as soon as you convert power from one form to another, there are going to be losses, which means it's going to be almost uniformly always more expensive to use power that has been stored than to use power directly. Um, And we have to look at ways that maximize the efficiency of energy storage so that we're not converting energy multiple times before we use it. In an ideal case, you use it as close as possible to the source of generation
3: and use it at the time of generation, and it's just getting harder and harder to do that. Absolutely agree with that. Storage is going to be all about um, where your storage is. Location is going to be such a massive factor uh, in terms of relieving congestion and also getting the maximum efficiency out of your storage assets or whatever is storing the energy and load shifting it around the place.
2: And to meet the targets which we have set out for having 30 gigawatts by 2030, these all discussions have to be done now and understanding what are the policies being created in the back of it to understand how can we put it all together in the way it is required into the grid or working with all different technologies, understanding which which will help in which way. And then as Michael said, using all the spectrum of, of liberal technologies to progress further.
1: And I guess if the UK government really has an ambition to hit, hit these targets, in such a short time frame they really have to start funding large demonstration projects because at the moment we have a tendency to fund small projects where we get to a certain TRL level technology readiness level and there are lots of technologies that could contribute to an overall solution but that solution's not being tried and tested it's not being demonstrated and therefore no one's Industry is willing to take that next leap to allow all of these technologies to come together, and it's just this valley of death, is what we call it. Yeah. Um, what, what we really need to see in the next few years is energy storage being demonstrated on a large scale. I
0: suppose building on energy storage, are there, are there other um, innovations and solutions that, that any of you've seen where you where you think yes, that, that you know, looking forward in the next Um, up to 2030 as a minimum but obviously you're thinking about 2050 as well is there anything going forward where you're thinking that there are other solutions that could help us um, sort of manage the grid better or is energy storage the sort of one of the one of the main ways to do it
2: yeah i think picking up what michael said applied research and demonstration is definitely the key and you really cannot pick a winner at this point in time, we have to explore all the solutions which are available to us to see which works best, and secondly, to understand what is the combinations and permutation and combination of those technologies which we can use. And going back to Alex's point, and is is one nation one grid the kind of concept we, which we can use with energy storage, or do we need to move into the decentralized things? And these need, things need to be tested before it is um, then expanded in a mass mass scale because we really can't take chances with our grid because it is a massive undertaking. It's one of the secure, biggest security issues a country faces. So if one thing goes off, it is going to create a blackout for the whole nation, which as a nation, it is it, it is a high risk element. So I, I, from my perspective, it's really at this stage, we really need to explore our, all our options and understand what is the best possible solution.
3: If I'm being really brutal, um, yeah, please do. I think that um, we take electricity for granted in the same way that we take fresh water for granted. Um, you don't notice it's uh, there until like happened to me today, twice uh, when I was getting ready to come here, two intermittent power cuts um, because they were doing some electrical works up, up, just up the road and so they, they interrupted the power supply. Mm-hmm. I think that we need probably a couple more August the 9th events albeit that was initiated by lightning strike before before really government will wake up and say we have a real problem on our hands all they're doing is casting big targets out front which i fully agree with and fully concur with but you have to then put money in underneath that to make that reality happen
1: yeah i think going back to your, your question there ben um energy storage is a massive. Will play a massive role in this. I don't think anyone can disagree with that. There are maybe other technologies as well, such as HVDC interconnectors between Europe and the UK, which will take a lot of the pressure off of, well, certainly the intermittency of uh, offshore renewables and um, solar power by spreading spreading us spreading a wider net, I suppose, over, over the area. Uh, There are also things like virtual power plants where single computers or companies are allowed to control multiple power plants, um, whether these are distributed uh, and very small or single large ones, um, based around the country or around the continent,
2: as well as different loads. And
1: by controlling intelligently which loads, which generation plants turn on and off, they can better meet the demands of of the grid, I suppose, which allows you to be a bit more intelligent in how the power is flowing between uh, different areas. But without a doubt, I think going more towards 2050, some more intelligent ways are Will also need to be developed i don't think we've seen all of the possible solutions come out yet i think there's a lot of merit in doing more research in other ways of managing the grid
2: not just these three ways that we're, we're discussing today i think demand side management is going to be playing a key role as alex also mentioned about the flexible Pricing of uh, electricity and things like those are going to really play an important role with vehicle-to-grid technologies coming into play.
1: I think we're potentially skirting around two major elephants in the room as well, these being energy for transport and energy for heat. Yeah. And not too f- far in the distant future, if things don't change, a lot of that's going to be electrolyzed, yeah. so it's not just what, the grid, what can the grid take now based on our electricity demands or what we traditionally consider to be electricity demands. But if we don't come up with significant ways forward in terms of alternatives for heat generation, alternatives for transportation, then this is going to be huge. It's gonna be a massive increase in the amount of power going through our overhead lines
3: and that's gonna require an awful lot of investment yeah, I was thinking about this this morning, and I was thinking, yeah, we've got a little village, a thousand people in it, and effectively, if you ask all those people in that village to, uh, to suddenly uh, drive an electric vehicle, that means you need uh, a whole load of uh, charging points on everybody's home. I know, I know full well that the new housing estate that's been built on the side of the, the village has, doesn't have the capacity to, or in terms of the pipe work, in terms of the cables that are being laid down and the transformer that's down there to actually take more than about three or four uh, charges before they'll pop the transformer. Uh, so I agree with National Grid that they probably will be able to cope with the doubling of power, which is what we're talking about, our doubling of our power requirements mm-hmm. due to electricity, due to heat. Um, I don't see how we can get round having to invest somehow into either reinforcement procedures into the distribution network huge investment to all these substations to upgrade them so they can take more power flowing through them and physically if you're going to transform power you generate heat generate heat you have to oil cool your transformer the oil cooling has a threshold on it our oil will burn at a certain temperature it happens from time to time not very often at the moment But again, it's something that we will see in the future unless we get real serious money invested into grid distribution. But the DNOs have got their hands tied by the regulator. The regulator uh, basically says when you come and do an intervention and put new new equipment in place, you can only do it for the current needs. They cannot future-proof. They're not allowed to in their contracts to future-proof and to build in excess capacity when they make an intervention. Now this is absolutely crazy how how can you build a system for the future if all you're doing is putting in stuff which is only good for today
2: i think that is so crucial because the whole uh, thing is going to fall on to consumers who are going to be paying it in their bills so if we don't start looking into it now and and start planning it for ahead we're not only wasting time and money now we are already wasting time for future how it is going to impact the consumer at the end of the day. So even the initiatives like uh, smart metering and the government push towards it, there's a huge resistance in consumers' mind to actually accept something like that because there's no trust that this is going to work. And this whole system flat falls flat on its face because nothing is working and nobody's talking to nobody and then it's just not functioning.
0: Okay, really interesting. So I'd, I'd like just to bring the sort of conversation back around a little bit to, uh, and, and Alex, of course you you, know, you run a uh, small to medium-sized enterprise, um, and and you obviously operate in this in this area. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on on sort of getting into this area because we obviously we're talking about a lot of a lot of issues, but, but clearly there's a need to um, I guess accelerate innovation and, and make the marketplace sort of ripe for new innovation. You were talking earlier, Michael, about about sort of incentivizing um, you know, research and, and new ideas to come through to help us um, overcome some of the, some of the issues we we'll face in the future with, with the group but I'm interested Alex from your perspective and what, what what your experience has been sort of coming into this into this market space and in this in this current climate
3: as well as, as you've described yeah there's there's political uncertainty at the moment we all, we all know about that uh, and that stops uh, big companies and smaller companies from investing um, they sit and wait uh, for until they know that the uh, the conditions are right, and they know that they can say, "Okay, yes, we are going to be able to export tomorrow." Uh, you know, for a lot of companies in the UK, that's a massive, uh, massive aspect. You know, a lot of the SME sector is over fifty percent export uh, into into foreign territories, and yet we have this massive uncertainty where we don't even know uh, if that income is going to be around. Um, it's very difficult to plan for long-term assets and investments uh, investments which typically are going to take five, seven, maybe even nine years to pay back point. I think there's a lack of trust um, in energy, anybody who's selling energy uh, because of what's what we've been used to in the in the past um, I think. Certainly, they've taken advantage of um, a lot of end-user inertia, uh, not switching and stuff of, of that nature. The market is certainly more dynamic today. There are far more players in the market, but then you've had 14 of those players, 15, I think, last count, who've gone under because um, they've been badly financially managed. Uh, so that, again, makes the market skittish. What, so there is not, this seems to be like we're, we're trying to move forwards whilst we're standing on quicksand. Uh, or let's say something which is less than firm ground uh, and we need firm ground to make these really serious investments and in which it's not going to be cheap this whichever yeah. way it's done
0: yeah. so obviously oh yeah, so those are clear challenges then but so what about um sort of other smes who may have potential solutions that, that, that they could work on and grow and ravni you've obviously you mentioned the eGrid program um that, that actually alex you you've you've, you've been through that um, and support program yeah are we seeing um a market that's sort of ripe for smes to to, to come in to provide potential solutions and innovation for for the uk grid
2: i, I definitely think there is a place for uh, innovation to flourish this is the right opportunity because where there are challenges there are solutions, and I, I'm sure that a lot of SMEs can provide solutions to those challenges. I agree to the point of value of Death, and it's difficult to take it to commercialization, but I think through the programs like eGrid, Launch Academy, we are really trying to support the SMEs working in offshore renewable energy sector to actually flourish and go from strength to strength and move uh, accelerate their technology readiness levels. Um, uh, there is investment required. There's innovation required. There's a human resource element to it. business planning uh, element involved into it. So it's a comprehensive package which is required to for our SME to be successful. And and I understand there are politically instability, but I think if something which is starting now keeps going from strength to strength. It, when the market is ready for it, they'll be able to capitalize on it and take the advantage from the sector because I think the industry is receptive to new ideas because they are finding the things the bigger TR tier, um, tier one suppliers and bigger manufacturing OEMs are not able to find all the solutions and they're not able to find all the innovations. so they are looking for SMEs who are more dynamic and can actually function in the, that space better to see how they can work with them. I think it is just making sure that they both are talking to each other and that that information transformation is happening i think that that's where these all programs come into play and support smes to grow and i think for an sme to
3: be successful
2: in this sector which is where we are at the moment we've gone through our proof of concept
3: uh, we've got patents in place uh, we've got a hugely experienced team um you have to have risk capital and that risk capital has to know that there is a chance of failure. Um, and the one thing I would say the government needs to really wise up to is, is is to you cannot have innovation without risk. The two go hand in hand. What you have to do is look for how can you take technologies from other sectors, blend them together, and then make a new solution, a completely different dynamic. Look what Dyson did to the vacuum, the humble vacuum cleaner. That's a, that's a great thing that technology existed in another market venturi filtration existed in big earth movers he just applied it to vacuum cleaners great
2: i think i I completely agree to what alex has just mentioned that cross-sector innovation is another element which is really important to explore things which have already worked in aerospace in digital sector manufacturing definitely can be applied to other sectors as well so we really need to broaden our horizons and understand and even actually for smes as well to think out of box of the solutions which the products and the services can provide their services can provide so i think uh, that's a very key element of innovation because innovation is not reinventing but it, it's applying that particular service or product into different spaces and more efficiently and which is more beneficial to other other solutions as well so um, yeah I, I think in that aspect as well we try through these programs that we are running in offshore renewable energy catapult try and promote cross-sector innovation, uh, work closely with other catapults like digital catapult, energy system catapult, uh, advanced manufacturing catapult, to understand what are the innovations happening in different domains which we can br- bring into our sector. We closely work with oil and gas sector. There's a lot of learnings we can learn from that sector because that's a very well established sector which has been working offshore for a long time to see if there are certain technologies which can be brought into offshore renewables uh, energy sector. It's
3: In some respects, I used to think the idea was the most important thing when 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 making innovation. I completely would uh, about face, the idea is the easy bit. How you scale that idea, how you find the finance, how you convince other people that what you're doing is real and tangible and uh, low risk so that they can invest their hard-earned money into that, that is a challenge and a half. Uh, Endless communication endless meetings, endless time and this time comes out of the project and, and I think as an innovator uh, you've got to you have have such resilience and uh, such belief in what you're doing in, uh, in order to make this happen. I think that's a very key point. A lot, of, a lot of
1: innovations are created by innovative people, engineers, scientists and they're really interested in the core technology but that only gets you so far to get your product all the way through into the market the idea itself starts to become irrelevant it's the next phase it's how do you convince people and generally the people that we're trying to convince are only mildly interested in the technology it's all the business side behind that they're really trying to invest in it because they don't understand the technology
3: agreed and all they want to know is the technology works doesn't it thank you very much tick that's tick in the box where is your first order coming from? That's the next question you'll be asked. Where is, can you give me a proof of interest from, a, from an end user? And so you then your switch then goes down the market and you have to go around all the end users selling them a solution that doesn't exist yet uh, and uh, get them on board to say, yes, uh, we are going to uh, host uh, a machine of some scale uh, and take the risk on that uh, whilst we're still doing our business as usual uh, activities. Uh, because most most companies haven't got time or don't view electricity as a core activity. They just want it when they need it. Um, and they don't want it messed around with. They just want it reliable.
2: Yeah, I think doing anything for the first time is the most hardest bit. And replicating that is really easy. So what Alex just mentioned, that if there's no solution out there like that, it's difficult to prove your traction that where who are you going to be selling it to and that's where the like what we are trying to facilitate through the launch uh, launch Academy is to work with the uh, OEMs like EDF Siemens and actually bring them together and ask them what are their challenges and then facilitating those challenges to the SMEs and going out and finding the SMEs who can actually provide the solution so uh, if, if there is a solution That communication between the tier one and actually the people who are going to be buying the solution it so it makes it just uh, it proves the concept and then uh, we are also facilitating the legal side of it and the uh, accountancy what Michael said there are other aspects of the innovation which need to be progressed as well.
0: Well, That seems like a good point to uh, to end on. Um, Are there any final points anyone wants to make Um, just on on the conversation we've had on on any of it it's, it's
3: i uh, i think that uh, this what you're doing here is great it's a communication piece it's involving people in in the in the discussion i think one of the biggest problems that we have is that everybody isn't involved in the discussion um there's a blind acceptance that energy is just going to be there for us and it's just there every day for us and I think everyone needs to be made aware of the risks in the same way that the climate change piece has been ratcheted up. Um, you know, plastics in the ocean is, I agree, a very serious problem, but it's nothing like the problem of uh, warming the ocean by one and a half degrees, which is equivalent to four degrees or five degrees in air temperature rise. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: That's frightening. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, I
2: think um, electricity is a very, important commodity and i think as a generation we have just taken it for granted and we need to start when we talk about climate change we talk about the commitment of net zero we really need to start using electricity sustainably. i think if we each each one of us start taking that small initiative and i think i'm trying to go on a very socialistic aspect of it i think we'll start working as together we can achieve a lot more
1: I think uh, the electric grids and electricity in general by large portions of the population is seen as a black box. Um, stuff goes in and then you get to use it at the end and people are starting to understand power generation. They can see wind turbines turning, they can see solar farms going up, they can see gas and nuclear power stations uh, as they're driving up the country. but. The, electricity grid, no one can really see electricity, there's that misunderstanding of what the electric grid is and the challenges that remain around it because it's, it's all quite abstract in some ways and maybe as engineers we need to do a better job of communicating the challenges that are around that so we can get the, the financing to the SMEs that are really trying to drive this sector forward and ensure that we have a stable grid that allows for our economy to grow, that allows power to get to the hospitals, that allows us to turn our lights and our heaters on when we get home at night.
0: Okay, so we'll move on to our technical challenge now. So you've each got one minute to explain a technical concept to listeners in the the simplest language possible. So Alex,
3: you've got one minute to explain what system inertia is. System inertia is completely different to what you get from uh, a battery or from a wind farm. Generally they they are binary, they switch on and off. Uh, There is no time for the frequency to make sudden adjustments. So system inertia is building up a certain amount of uh, potential energy and then dissipating over time. Synchronous generators uh, do that and they allow the system then to gradually ramp up and gradually ramp down, rather than flicking a light switch on off.
0: Perfect, thank you, inside one minute.
1: Um, Okay, Michael, what is a HVDC power transformer? So, HVDC is high voltage direct current. Normally you have uh, AC, so all of the grid is normally alternating current, Um, but over long distances, particularly subsea cables you get for offshore wind farms um, you get a lot of losses when you try and transmit ac power so we're trying to move dc for these particular wind farms the challenge is that at low voltages such as the voltages that are normally created by offshore wind farms you also get a lot of losses so what we need is a transformer that steps up the voltage from low voltage to high voltage but it's done in DC which is where the HVDC transformer comes from
0: okay thank you Ravneet what is grid emulation
2: so the grid emulator system can emulate any grid in world under various condition for any renewable energy technology The system controls voltage and frequency at the connection point to emulate a wide variety of fault conditions experienced during the operation. A grid emulator also allows manufacturers to get a more complete overview of their technology, increasing reliability and performance that results in reduction of unscheduled maintenance and in turn lowering the cost of energy. In addition, grid emulator system also supports the test development, and research of grid services, grid integration, and energy storage.
0: Ravneet, Michael, and Alex, thank you for taking part in today's episode. It's time to de-energize now until next time. Ravneet and Michael, you're part of the Catapult team, so listeners can find out about your projects at ore.catapult.org.uk and, of course, on Twitter with the handle at orecatapult. And you can find out more about Alex and his company, Sherwood Power, um, on Twitter, at Sherwood Power. Um, And you can also find more about him on his website as well, sherwoodpower.co.uk. And of course, he's on all the usual social medias, including LinkedIn and Google Business. We'll be back this time next month, so make sure you subscribe.